let's take our Bibles. First John chapter two. First John chapter two. We're continuing our series called the spiritual physical where we're looking. Kids, you're dismissed. I'm sorry. We're looking at the different parts of our physical and spiritual bodies and what the Bible says about how we should maintain them in order to be holy and to be spiritually mature. And the first two weeks, we studied uh, two areas that we established are really foundational uh, to everything else that's going on to our spiritual health. We talked the first week about the spiritual temperature of our lives, and a lot of you uh, responded to that, that the Lord spoke to you on that, about whether we're on fire or whether we're kind of tepid. And then last week we talked about protecting our mind. And our study today really centers on a body part that has a significant influence in what we talked about last week. It has a significant influence into what goes into our mind and how what goes into our mind determines what our actions are. Now it's been said, and I tried to find who the original quote started from, and so many people uh, have been attributed to this, including Shakespeare, but it's been said that the eyes are the window to the soul. And the inference there is that we can often read what's going on in somebody's life just by looking at their eyes. I've learned this over the years of of counseling people. When somebody walks in my office and needs counseling, I can I can tell after uh, half a quarter century of doing this that that there's something going on. I can usually read tiredness, which is true of most of us, and weariness of winter, which is definitely true of most of us. Uh, and, and sometimes you see despair, sometimes you see hopelessness, sometimes you see defiance, uh, and other times you just um, see that there's something that's not right there spiritually. There's something that's, that's going on that doesn't fit. You can even spot sin. And it's easy to, to then get a read and say, based on what I'm seeing in you, I can get an indication of what's going on in your life. But that's not the angle I want to I want to take this morning. There's another aspect to the eyes of being the window of the soul that we don't talk about very often, and that's that our eyes are also the window into what our what our soul takes in. Everything that in our eyes, everything we view this morning. I'm getting a view of this room. I see the stained glass on the windows. I see you dressed very nicely. I see the screen that has the time on it. I see people talking in the hallway, dealing with ministry. I see the guys inside. I'm taking that all in. My mind is reading that. It's filtering the information. It's bouncing off my retinas and telling my brain, here's what I see. So everything that comes in comes into my soul, so to speak. It's a, it's a window into me. And it becomes a gateway then to what goes into my mind and into my heart and what I now ascertain about what's going on. Now, that can be good and it also be bad. But it's definitely become more of an issue as our society has become much more visible. Sometimes it's it's kind of hard to fathom just how differently we gain information than, say, 30 years ago. We were joking in the house the other day about um, how we gather information. And if you wanted to go see a picture of the Eiffel Tower, I'm going to show my age here, and that's okay. I have gray hair that's coming in, so everybody knows I'm an old man. But if you wanted to go see the Eiffel Tower, let's say back in 1974, how would you do that? You'd run over to the bookshelf, whether it would be 30 leather-bound books 
that were on the shelf. How many know where I'm going with this, all right? The Encyclopedia Britannica, sold door to door. What a fine piece of, of literature that was, right? So you would go to E, and you'd go to Eiffel Tower, and what would you have? You'd have one black and white picture of the Eiffel Tower. You'd maybe go to Paris uh, in the Encyclopedia Britannica and look, and you might find another picture of the Eiffel Tower. So maybe you'd get two pictures. Wow, big day. Stand up and go change the channels on the dial on the TV set. Or you'd go to the library, right? And you'd get a book on Paris or a book on the Eiffel Tower. And that would give you, wow, 40 or 50 pictures now of this beautiful building in Paris. Now you can click and you can see tens of hundreds of thousands of pictures of the Eiffel Tower. Day, night, backwards, forward, up and down. People standing, people waving, people kissing, birds flying. It doesn't matter. You can see anything you want about the Eiffel Tower. You can even buy some computer methods, fly under the Eiffel Tower or stand on top of the Eiffel Tower or see a picture from a ledge of the Eiffel Tower. I mean, anything that we want to do now, we can do. And then you can zoom out and get a street view and see the restaurants that are close by. And then you can click again and get the menu for the restaurants and see the picture of the chef at the restaurant and say, I don't eat snails, but if I go to Paris, I'm getting the escargot. The difference in how we gather, the difference in how we process information is far different from when I was 10 and I was seeing two pictures of the Eiffel Tower, a place I had never visited before and seemed a billion miles away. Now everything is right there and we can see it. And that, that, that is wonderful, isn't it? I love that. I'm not being critical of that. I think it's fantastic. Matthew the other day was, was on a little tablet, and he's like, Dad, look at this. And he's pulling in pictures of these places on, in the world. He's like, look at this. Here's Chicago. And he'd spread it out and go right in on the – and I'm like, that is so – what you're able to do now versus when I was your age, the, the availability of information is unbelievable. It makes our lives easier in so many ways. But there's a flip side. And the enemy has exploited that by making it so appealing to us to have convenience and to have access to all these images that that has made us now more visual in our desires. And as we become more visual in our desires, we become more curious about what we want to see. You'd think it'd be just the opposite. You would think that when you don't have access to information, when it's off limits that the curiosity factor would be higher. But the devil's twisted that. So now we want more and more and more. We want more options, more information, and we're never kind of satiated by it. Let me give you an example of this. Back in the 70s, there were several magazines that were considered pornographic. Now, by today's standards of hardcore pornography, these were probably more on the mild side but, but back then, if somebody needed to go or wanted to go buy one of those magazines, they'd have to kind of walk in with a hood on and, and it was behind the counter and it was covered and it was, it was salacious to go do that. Now, everything's accessible. Any variation of anything that you can possibly imagine is available. Let me give you some statistics, and I quoted some things the other week, but let me give you some statistics, and these are from 2006. It's the most current thing I could find, so they're seven years old. Imagine how much worse it is seven, eight years later in 2014. 
In 2006, there were 4.2 million pornographic websites. 12% of all websites were pornographic. 420 million pages. 13,000 hardcore titles were uh, released. And again, that was before the Internet is used like it is now. This is eight years ago. There were 2.5 billion pornographic emails sent every day. 43% of Internet users looked at pornography. 89% of youth in chat rooms are solicited for sex. Let that settle in for a second. 89% of youth in chat rooms are solicited for sex. In 2006, it was a $13.3 billion industry just in the United States. Now, those are frightening numbers. And it tells you just how epidemic it is. But it gets worse, as if we needed worse, right? Over half of evangelical pastors admit viewing pornography. 29% of born-again adults feel it's morally acceptable, not okay, but acceptable to view movies with explicit sexual behavior. In 2006, 50% of all Christian men and 20% of all Christian women are addicted to pornography. Not just look at it, are addicted to it. 60% of surveyed women admit to having significant struggles with lust. 40% admit to being involved in sexual sin. Now, there's no way that we can listen to those statistics and say that this isn't a temptation and it isn't an, uh, uh, an issue that will dramatically affect our youth and us. And that's just pornography. That's not talking about covening and materialism and time wasted on looking at things with no eternal value. So there's no question, and, and I've been more convinced of this this week than ever, there's no question that we need to seriously analyze what we're looking at and how it's affecting our hearts and our minds, because the visual nature of our lives is only going to increase. It's not going to scale back. We will never go back to the days of Encyclopedia Britannica. Even Encyclopedia Britannica, I can't even say the words, it's so hard to say. Even Encyclopedia Britannica doesn't put out the books anymore. Now it's all online. So we're never going back. It's only going to increase. And if we don't guard what we're taking in, then we are going to find ourselves susceptible to temptation. Now, that's a long lead into John chapter 2, because this is what John talks about. The themes of this letter are the contrast between spiritual light and spiritual darkness, that we've been cleansed from sin as believers through Christ, and that the proof of our Christian life is that we are walking in righteousness, and by walking in righteousness, we're showing love for God, and we're showing love for each other. This passage, John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 21, hits all of those themes. And it calls us to a very definitive decision about how we're going to live. So let's read it. We'll briefly take it apart, and then we'll draw some application. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven for his name's sake. Writing to believers here. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who's been from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you've overcome the evil one. I'm writing to you, children, because you know the father. I've written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you're strong and the word of God abides in you and you've overcome the evil one. John really gets down to it. And there's, let me just preface this by saying, 
There's no way to equivocate what we're about to read. There's no way to nuance it. There's no way to say, well, he doesn't really mean that. The Spirit's not really being that direct. It's a matter of interpretation. Uh, we have to look at... No. Everything we're about to read is exactly what the Spirit of God means. Okay? Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That is a sobering verse. For all that's in the world... The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the beautiful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Children, it's the last hour. Just as you've heard the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it's the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out. So it would be shown that they are all not of us. But you, I love this verse, you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I've not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is in the truth. Now, in verses 12 to 14, John establishes four truths that we need to remember as believers. And if you're taking notes, write these down or underline them in your Bible or do something. Let's really now interact with the Spirit, what he's telling us. There are four truths that are foundational and well-known to us. I'm not sure we'll ever understand just how powerful they are and just how true they are. But let's just walk through them. In verse 12, he says, We have had our sins forgiven because of Christ. In verse 13, he says, we know him who is Lord of all. Okay, our sins are forgiven and we know the Lord. Verse 13 again, he says, we have overcome the evil one because of the work of Christ. And in verse 14, he says, we are strong because the word of God abides in us. Now, as believers in Jesus Christ, here are the facts, here is what he is telling us is true. Our sins are gone. We have a relationship with the Lord. He enables us to have victory over the devil, and we are mighty. Especially when the word of God is dwelling in our hearts. This is the power of what the Lord has done in and through us. And we are assured, we are, we are, we are told and promised and assured that we are not controlled by sin anymore, that it doesn't have a place, so it shouldn't appeal to us in our new nature, and it shouldn't have any influence in how we live. Now, that fact, what we just said, is true of every believer. It doesn't matter if you've been saved one day or a hundred years, that is true of all of us. The transforming work of Christ, the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit, is sufficient for every single believer in this room to overcome sin, and we lack nothing. So if sin is still a factor in our lives, if it's still resting on us, then that is our decision, because God's provision is not weak or insufficient in any way. God, God has provided all that we need pertaining to life and godliness. And now he says to us, look at all I've done. I've redeemed you. I've saved you. I've changed you. I've transformed you. I've given you all you need. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to put off sin and put on holiness. 
And this is a matter of the heart, because if you look back at the text, it says we're not to love the world or the things of the world. In other words, this is this has got emotional attachment to it. It's not that it's just there and it's and it's just a decision and it's very clinical and logical or illogical. And we just make it based on that. There's an emotional attachment. There's still a pull toward that former life, toward that former love. And there's a latent desire in us, even though we've been forgiven and transformed. There's a latent appeal now to go back to it. If you had dated someone earlier in your life, who ridiculed you and beat you, and maybe some of you did, and I'm sorry if this is true. They ridiculed you and beat you and abused you and kept you in shackles and and treated you in an unimaginable way. And then you were rescued by someone who sacrificed themselves to make them that happen, and now that person loves you unconditionally and gives you all you need and treats you with honor and respect, even when you hurt them and when you when you do something wrong, they forgive you and they keep their promises. If we had the contrast of those two things, we would never in a million years go back to the person that beat us and abused us and kept us in shackles. But that's what we do when we sin. We take the person who loves us, the one who gave himself for us, and we say, that's wonderful, but I am convinced that if I can just go back and be with that other person for a while, that that's going to be great. And we've talked ourselves into, it will be better this time. I've counseled women over the years who are in abusive relationships. They said, I got to get away from them. I said, good, yes, you do. And then two months later, they'll come in while I went back to them. I'm like, why? Why? You're, you're enslaved to this. Well, I just, I thought it would be better this time. Every time we yield to temptation, every time we go back to sin, we're fooling ourselves and saying, it'll be better this time. It'll bring me more fulfillment this time. We're convinced ourselves that we can have two loves. But look at John's point, verse 15. He says, if you go back to that former love, you don't really love the Lord. You can't love both. And notice what pulls us back into that old world. It's lust and it's pride. The two are interconnected because they both appeal to self-fulfillment. So the Spirit warns us here through John. He says, we have to heavily guard ourselves against lust and pride. Look at the verse. Because all that is in the world is not of the Father. That uh, Listen, that's exactly what the Spirit means. This is not hyperbole. Don't dismiss that and say, well, that's not true. There are some things that are wonderful. The Holy Spirit means exactly what he means, that anything the world approves of and promotes that is not pleasing to the Lord, that is not designed to make us more like him, is not of God. And he especially mentions three things that are characterized here. Look at it. He says, whatever is the lust of the flesh, whatever is the lust of the eyes, and whatever is the boastful pride of life. Now, let's quickly define each one because there's distinctions to each one. The lust of the flesh is the pleasure that the body craves to be satisfied physically and relationally. 
This is more base uh, in the definition in the in the Greek. It says animal. It's more of our our base and coarse desires. It's not really rational. It tends to be a, a to to appeal to our physiology and appeal to our emotion. It's it's what feels good in the short term and but is not fulfilling over time. And that is not just sexual sin. It's drug and alcohol abuse. It's food and eating too much. There's a long list. Anything that we crave that we kind of say, this will give me a short-term fix and make me feel better. But long-term, it's damaging. That's the lust of the flesh. Sorry about that. Second, look at the verse, lust of the eyes. This is more materialistic. This is more craving. This is more coveting things that we want to obtain that we think will make our lives better. And when we have lust of the eyes, there's a little bit more time for thought. There's a little bit more time to to say, boy, if I could have that, that would just make my life complete. Now, these thoughts are warped by selfishness. They're they're controlled by what we want to gain. And many times that that is about riches or about possessions or about another person or something like that. So the lust of the flesh is that, that animal instinct, that, that quick response. The lust of the eyes now, we're starting to think through it more. And then that leads into the third one, which is the pride of life. This is the foundational principle of which the devil and mankind rebelled against God and incited ourselves to sin. It's the arrogant conclusion that I'm better than God. I know better than God. I don't need God. I don't need to answer to God. And I desire what I desire. And and people should applaud me for it. There's so many variations of the pride of life. And this is an offense to the character of God. It's an offense to the, to the mercy of God because we're so unholy and so unworthy and God has still forgiven us. And yet when pride stokes up and we say, well, I know better. So I can look at that thing and I can desire that thing and I can have that thing and that can be mine. I have this delusion of grandeur that I'm now special and I get what I want to get. And if that damages my relationship with the Lord, I'm okay with that for the short term. I'll get it together later. John says, oh, we got to be so careful of this. Because the devil exacerbates these feelings. Now, look at what all these come back to. And let's try to draw it to a close. They all come back to lust covening and both of those words are sourced in the eyes the bible warns us again and again about the danger of what we see and about how it can influence us to not walk in righteousness in psalm 119 david says that he needs to be revived in the ways of god and he will be if he turns his eyes away from what is vain and worldly In Proverbs 4, his son Solomon warns us to let our eyes be directly, to look directly ahead and away from sin, because by doing that, we'll guard our heart. Jesus says in Matthew 5, and he's again not being, uh, not using hyperbole, he says, listen, it would be better for you to die with one eye and to poke one eye out than to continue to allow yourself to look at things that are going to damage you spiritually. That tells us just how dangerous this is.
Now, he's not saying go around and self-mutilate. He's saying, look, if this is an issue, you've got to take drastic action to get away from it. And we see numerous examples of that throughout Scripture. Lot setting his tents towards Sodom and Gomorrah, looking at it day after day, inching closer day after day, until finally he's sitting at the gate of the city. He's the greeter. He's the guy. Hey, Lot, what's up? How you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. Good to see you, Charlie. Glad you're here today. He, he moved from up on the hill, and he kept looking and looking and looking. David, as he's walking on the rooftop one night, looks over and sees a woman bathing. Wow, she's really pretty. Somebody else's wife, but hey. Lust of the flesh. I want what I want. I want it now. Send for her. Leads to the death of babies, the the rebellion of Absalom, the rape of Tamar, the loss of credibility, all because he kept looking. We see Ahab saying, I want Naboth's vineyard. I want what I want. And he goes and he cries in his chair and Jezebel comes in. Oh, Ahab, I'll get it for you. Turmoils created. We see Nebuchadnezzar being so fond of himself that he builds a graven image that's tall. And he says, everybody bow down to me because I am a good looking man and I am in charge. We see the Pharisees looking at the crowds walking around and being jealous, not because Jesus was speaking truth, but because they wanted crowds and nobody wanted to listen to them. And they were popular. And why are people following us? And we need to get rid of Jesus so people will like us. Don't you know that's at the core of that? The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes. Lust isn't always sexual. In fact, we usually characterize it that way, but lust goes into so many different areas. It's all self-focused. It's all away from the spirit. It all appeals to our selfishness and our pride. And as John says right here, the Holy Spirit speaking through John, he says, that cannot be of the Lord. So we need to take a very uh, extensive evaluation of what we see and what we take into our heart and mind and understand whether it qualifies as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes. I tried to bring this down to one question this week, and the question that came back to me, and it's very simple, is does it feed my flesh or does it lead to greater spiritual maturity? Does it feed my flesh or does it lead to greater spiritual maturity? Will this eventually pass away or is it eternally beneficial? And you know what? The Lord doesn't provide us with a lot of middle ground. It either pleases him or it pleases ourselves. Now, the one thought that came to me as I, as I was given that question is, that's not easy. Well, that really, that really brings it down to some hard decisions And yet the next thought that the Spirit really, I believe, put in my heart was, yeah, I never said the path to holiness was easy. It's a narrow road. Few walk on it. And we're going to feel like aliens, and we're going to feel like outcasts, and we're going to feel abnormal and out of place in the middle of everything else. But that's the appeal of lust and pride. It is exactly the same rationale that the devil used with Adam and Eve in Genesis 3. Do you know what he said to them? This hit me so strongly this week. Isn't it strange that God doesn't let you have that one tree? Is it normal, Eve, for you not to have that one pleasure? You know, if you would just participate, 
you would be just like him. Now, here's what's so unbelievably amazing about that. The enemy guilted them into peer pressure toward the Lord. In other words, you won't be cool like God if you don't do it. Now, we know our teenagers are getting it, right? Well, you won't be cool like us if you don't do this because we're so smart because we're 16. The devil had the audacity to say, you won't be cool like God if you don't do it. Can you imagine the hubris, the pride of giving them peer pressure toward the Lord? This is how insidious it is. And it carries over into the desire for power and authority and wanting what's not ours and images and experiences that are going to damage us and ruin us that do nothing for us spiritually, but just hurt us. Our mind is like a big memory card. What's on your memory card? Is it almost exclusively things that are wonderful and holy, or is it things that are unholy and destructive? What what windows are open? You know, Windows was created, what, 25, 30 years ago? This, this concept where you can have multiple images on your screen. I know you Mac people are like, ooh, Windows. Okay, we get it. You're cool, all right? You Mac people. I wish I was a Mac person. I'm too stupid. Anyway, Windows, right? All kinds of windows open on the screen. Multiple tabs. I'm a multiple tab guy. I love opening a new tab. I got like 87,000 tabs on my computer right now. What windows are open? What are the tabs that are there that are kind of hidden that nobody knows about? What's on the temporary internet file list of your mind this morning? What images are not of the Father? I'm being very serious when I say that. I'm not trying to be cute this morning. What windows are open? The retinas in my eyes have taken in billions of images over the years. And there are some lasting images that I have allowed in my head that I will never get rid of. I'm not talking necessarily evil things. I'm just talking about things that I wish I had never seen. And that was self-inflicted. And the Lord does help to eliminate them. There have been times where I've said, Lord, you've got to remove that image from my mind because it's disturbing to me. What are you feeding into your mind? It doesn't even have to be things that are unholy or evil. Even things that are distractions become a greater priority from us. This week, you've got 168 hours. What are you going to be looking at the most? And I will tell you, what you look at the most is your priority. If you're spending a lot of time watching TV or on the computer, then you and I need to ask ourselves, am I trying to escape from something? Am I I trying to shirk responsibility? If our phones are continually in our hands, even when we're spending time with our families, we need to say to ourselves, why am I not giving direct attention to them when I'm looking at this little box? If we're constantly on social media, we need to assess whether we're looking for something or someone that is outside the relationships that we already have. If we're looking for some kind of affirmation rather than being around the people that already give us affirmation. If we're looking at unholy images, stop. Just stop. Just don't do it anymore. Fill your mind with what is pure and what is lovely and what is true and what is honorable and what has a good reputation. That's why David says, your word have I hid in my heart 
What's the next line? So I won't sin against you. If we fill our hearts with God's word rather than those images or those apps or whatever's going on, which are great and helpful, but listen, they're distracting us from the word of God, which is the only thing that prevents us from sin. How much time will you spend? This is, I'm guilty of this too. How much time will you spend directly studying the word of God this week versus playing a game? How much time? That's not a guilt trip. That's a reality. Heaven and earth will pass away. Jesus says, my word won't. Don't focus on the things. Listen, the lusts, they're all going to fade away. But when you walk in the will of God, oh, that's eternal. John echoes Jesus' words back in verse 17. Look at it. I know this is heavy. The world is passing away, also it's lust. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Now, we know that's true. And let me finish with this. There's a little voice right now that's yelling in our heads. What's the big deal? Why is Pastor Rhodes making such a big issue out of this? You're not unholy. You're doing the will of God. And what does it matter anyway? You're saved. You're going to heaven. It's going to be fine. All right, so let's ask that out loud so we can deal with it head on and not wonder anymore. Why does this matter? Why is this a big deal? Why should we be so disciplined and so careful to be set apart and holy and not influenced by or participating in the love of the world? Is it just because Christians have to be strict and Christians can't have any fun and we can't exercise what we want to do? Or or is there a more urgent reason that should drive every lifestyle decision? Look at verse 18. Are we just being strict and fundamentalist and hard and, and, and uh, come on, I knew this is what Christianity was all. No, there's another reason. Because John says in verse 18, children of God, we should live this way because it's the last hour. It's the last hour, not just the last days. John takes it up a notch. He says, this is the last hour, the final hour of history. Antichrist is going to come. But before Antichrist comes, there are going to be subordinates that are out. And they're creating an appeal and an appetite for mankind to do what's dishonoring to God. And they're creating a desire for lust. And that's going to pull people away from the logic of righteousness and the wonder of what we just sang about God's mercy so that we can do what we want and say what we want and be with who we want and act however we want. And really, there's just no consequences. And yet, you come back to that verse and you say, Jesus Christ can appear at any moment. In the next five seconds, he could appear. There's nothing left to be fulfilled until Christ comes back. How is he going to find us? What will he find us doing? Spiritually sober, prepared, ready, looking for him, serving with all we have, trying to influence people and give them the love of Christ and show them the gospel and minister to each other and pray and nurture our walk. Is that how he's going to find us? Or is he going to find us living for ourselves, casually oblivious, 
not ready, going, wait a second, I thought I had more time. I'm not being overly dramatic this morning. That's exactly what the text says. And how we answer that question will largely determine what we're going to look at and how much priority we're going to give it. And what we're looking at and how much priority we're giving it is a good indication of how prepared we are to see him. Now, look at one more verse. I forgot I had to do verse 20. It's my favorite verse, and we're going to leave on a good note here. If there's anything that's going to stir us to action this morning, it's verse 20. Oh, church, let's learn this verse this week. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know it. Everybody say amen. Believer, you have an anointing from the Holy Spirit, and you know it. Those words have so much power, and it's such an awesome truth. Believer this morning, you know this truth. You have an anointing from the Holy Spirit. And that goes beyond knowledge. It is a living in the strength of the truth. Listen to that. You and I are not just saved from sin. Listen to that sentence. We're not just saved from sin. That would be enough to be delivered this morning, to say God has saved me, forgiven me, freed me, secured me forever. That would be enough to praise God for all eternity. But he says, I'm going to go a step further. I'm going to anoint you with my spirit and my holiness and my strength to overcome. The word anointing there is the word charisma. It means to invest in, to consecrate, and to furnish with all the power we need from the Holy Spirit. It calls to mind when the king would be anointed and they would pour oil over his head as a statement of anointing. God says, here's what I've done. I've poured the oil of my Holy Spirit on top of your head. And you have everything because I have invested in you. I have secured you. I've invested in you. I've given you my Holy Spirit and you are consecrated and you are furnished with all my power for what you need to live. That's not a hope. It's not a suggestion. It's not a, wow, that would be great if that was true. That's why he adds the last line. Look at it. We're going to pray. He says, you know this. You know this. And when we walk in that anointing, that has the effect of giving us spiritual discernment and it enlightens us and strengthens us in the eyes of understanding. What a contrast to verse 16, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the world, and the pride of life. He says, no, believer, you don't have to live that way. Put off the old, put on the new. I've given you my spirit. You're anointed. And by the way, it's the last hour. Are you ready for me? You ready to see me? Because I'm coming. How are you living? Let's close our eyes. They can get us into so much trouble, so let's close them. Let's focus on the Lord right now. I debated whether to say if this message is talk to you and the Spirit's spoken to you and this is an area you need to change to raise your hands, but I don't need to see that. That's not something I need to take in my heart. This is between you and the Lord. I don't need to know that about you. I'll tell you, I struggle with it too. Every one of us struggles with it. The question is, what are we going to do about it? 
Are we guarding our eyes? And by extension, are we guarding our hearts and minds? The lust of the flesh, the things that we just want, the animal instincts, the base, core, just, I need this. The lust of the flesh, materialism, coveting, power, authority. I got to have that. My life would be better. The pride of life. Look at me. Pay attention to me. Applaud me. These are the things that our eyes are drawn to. We're barraged with information. What are we taking in? I want to challenge you this morning. I want to challenge myself this morning. That we be much more careful. That we be holy in what we take into our minds. That the Spirit of God would give us great conviction when we're looking at the wrong thing. He has anointed us. Anointed us for holiness. Jesus is coming back. Father, we pray you would help us in this area because honestly, we're just overwhelmed by how many images there are. And things are far more accessible. And clearly, by the statistics, this is a problem for many of us. Lord, give us a pure and holy passion. Give us an obsession for what is holy and not what is unholy. Because, Lord, we know the damage that it can do to our reputation, to our marriages, to our walk. So many different ways that the lust of the eyes can drag us down. And we ask you to help us and convict us, not just this week, but until you return, that we would be holy and we would be set apart. Lord, we thank you that you're already sufficient to do this, that you've already prepared us to do this, and that every day we have the power of your spirit to do this. Lord, help us to walk in the anointing that you've given us and to be people that would please you in every single way. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.